Hello, everybody. I'm Danny Boom Boom McCarthy. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Story of Nowhere podcast. I recognize that you may have forgotten by now, but my name is Daniel McCarthy, at long last returning from an unplanned-for few-month break from the show. It's been a painfully long time since I put out a podcast, and frankly, I feel pretty bad about it. As you can hear, my baby is with me in this episode, and of course she is... (laughs) No hard feelings, love, but one of the reasons that it's been so difficult for me to put out shows as often as I would like, the complexities of personal life, not least of which having a small baby, have made it difficult to sit down and bang out podcasts like I, well, I suppose I was never very good with putting things out regularly, but even still, it's never been this bad. But I can't blame her for all of it. There are other parts of life that get in the way of things, and that's okay. For example, not too long ago, I came home from work to find that my room in my basement, where I do my podcasting and keep a lot of my books and research material and, of course, computers, uh, I found it soaked with water. And I can't say that it flooded down here. No, no. Rather, the water seeped in and, well, if it weren't for all the books and carpeting down here, it probably would have been a flood. But instead, the carpet and the books soaked up all the water. So I had to tear the carpet out of the room, and that involved moving everything out of the room, and unfortunately, a decent number of books were soaked completely through. Uh, Only a few, a, a sad number, but not as many as it could have been. It could have been worse, but even so, a number of books were completely destroyed beyond repair. Uh, more were just kind of lightly damaged, uh, but they still remain wrinkly and crinkly and ever taunting me of that horrid night. So, that's kind of put the damper on my productivity lately, but I'm slowly putting everything back together. Luckily, my recording equipment and computers, and most importantly, my external hard drives on which I store all my years of archived data, were safely off the ground and have remained undamaged. But, as with so many tragedies, it also provides an opportunity So in putting my room back together, I have taken the chance to reorganize my books and finally get everything in order. It's certainly not done yet, but I'm finally coming up with what I like to think of as a proper system of organizing everything that I've accrued over the years, book-wise. In fact, I would like to perhaps do some kind of presentation on that, sort of walk people through my library, but let's just try to get one episode out before I start making you guys promises. So anyway, there's the baby, there's the water damage in the podcast room, but also the subject that I've been studying lately, as you heard in the last episode, is the JFK assassination. And my God, is it deep and complicated and very, very time-consuming. So I already find myself lacking the time I would like to devote to researching, and I've certainly picked a subject that demands almost constant attention. So... I have not been lazy or idle these past few months when you haven't heard from me. I have been, as rigorously as possible, 
studying the JFK assassination and writing on it and taking notes and preparing for the next episode. So I have not vanished and the podcast has not ended and I have not been ghosting you. I promise. Please forgive me. But anyway, you didn't tune into this to hear my excuses. I'd like to give you guys a proper show. So today, because I'm not quite done with the episode that was supposed to follow the first part, my introduction to the JFK series, I have not finished it. Um, but I have been working on it as often as I can. And in this upcoming episode, uh, the plan was for me to just go through the official narrative of the JFK assassination. Because, as I said in part one, I think of the JFK assassination as a sort of window through which we might discern the more general activities of the deep state. The JFK assassination being a sort of discrete exemplification of the way the deep state behaves. But of course, that's only true if the official narrative, that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone and virtually randomly, is not true. For if that's the case, if it's true that some random dude bought a gun and took a shot at the president and got lucky, then that tells us virtually nothing about the deep state. I suppose you could say that maybe the resulting investigations might give you some information or insight into the way government functions, but insofar as the assassination is a random event, as the mainstream official narrative posits, it is largely irrelevant to the study of power itself. So, this upcoming episode is going to be focusing on the official narrative and trying to take a fair look at it and discern whether or not the Warren Commission report, the official narrative, is credible, or if in fact there's more to it, if there's more to the assassination than the Warren Commissioners would have you believe. Now, as you can no doubt tell, I mean, I'm doing this series, after all, and I've already sort of alluded to the fact that I think that this is a window into the deep state, so certainly you can see that I've kind of already made up my mind. I do come at the JFK assassination with a point of view, which, quite frankly, (laughs) there's the baby again, which, quite frankly, is that it was a conspiracy, that Lee Harvey Oswald did not act alone. I don't really know at this point what I think his role in the assassination was, if he indeed had one. But I do believe that the Warren Commission and the official narrative are lacking in explanatory power regarding all of the events that occurred that day, the events that followed, and the events that preceded it. So, I'll just tell you that straight up, that uh, I do have a position, and a reason that I wanted to do this series is because The JFK assassination is one of those things that so many Americans have a sort of idle opinion on. Like, I remember I asked my grandma about it years and years ago, and she thought the mob did it because, you know... Oh, buddy, are you falling asleep? I hope so. Good Lord. This is one night owl baby, let me tell you. Uh, Anyway, my grandmother said she thought the mob did it because she was into the mob and she liked The Godfather and we used to watch it together and that was our thing. So she thought the mob killed JFK, but she hadn't done any research about it, of course. Uh, Other Americans will just say, ah, it was the CIA or it was LBJ or it was this or it was that. Some people still believe it was the fucking Cubans. So everyone's got a sort of layman's theory, but I wanted to say, I wanted to sit down and figure out, well, what's my take on it? I wanted to have a sort of educated judgment in this case, so I wasn't just one of these people kind of half-cocked saying it was the government or whatever. I wanted to come to an educated conclusion. I don't expect that I'll solve the case, and I don't suspect that I'll come to any firm conclusions that I'll be unwilling to change. 
at least regarding specifics. Uh, I am pretty well convinced that there was a conspiracy, and now the question for me becomes, well, who done it, and what can we learn from it? So that is the point of this series. But that said, I still do want to consider the official narrative fairly. I'm not just going to spend the next episode, which will be one of my classic, you know, I guess you could call it essay episodes, where I just go off and basically lecture you guys. That is what I'm planning to do regarding the official narrative, and I've started work on that episode already and have been working on it for months now. And in that, I want to take a fair look at the official story and not take any cheap shots and really try to break down what the best arguments against the official narrative are by providing the strongest arguments in favor of the official narrative and seeing if they hold up. And so with that in mind, I would like to spend the duration of today's episode kind of just casually talking about JFK, not with any real angle in mind. And that's because, as I said before, my podcasting office is in disarray at the moment. I've got books all over the floor. They're finally organized, uh, but they're not put up yet on shelves or anything. I mean, some of them are, some aren't, whatever, you don't care. Um, I wanted to just kind of go through my pile of JFK books while I have you guys here and make this episode a kind of JFK potpourri miscellany talk where I pull out the books that I'm using for this series and just kind of talk about them. I think that would be kind of fun. Uh, at least it will be for me because I'm a nerd. Uh, but then it'll also give the listener an idea of some of the things that you might read if you're interested in exploring this case more deeply. Um, this will include books, mostly books coming at it from a conspiratorial angle, I admit, but also books dealing with it in a very mainstream way. So let's get into it. I suppose the most appropriate starting point for a conversation on a JFK reading list would be the Warren Commission Report. I've got two editions of this. As some of you may know, the entire Warren Report is actually 27 volumes long. Uh, there's the Warren Report itself, which is quite long, which in which the commissioners outline their narrative of events. And then that's followed by 26 volumes of supplementary material. I believe 15 of those volumes are composed of witness testimony, and 11 of those volumes are just collections of Warren Commission exhibits. So I don't physically possess the 26 volumes of supplementary material, although I would like to, but I do have them digitally. Uh, anyone can find these at archive.org, and I'll throw a link to those in the show notes. I highly recommend you look at them, and even if you don't look at them right now, because as you can obviously tell, there's quite a bit of data there, go to that link and just download it. Just put it on your computer, put it on your hard drive, and keep it. Because as I've said before, things on the internet have a strange tendency of going away. I think the raw testimony that the Warren Commission records is worth keeping. So just go ahead and download that while it's still free and while you can still find it. Because there is a lot in there. Of course, in the next episode, I'll talk more about the nuances of the Warren Commission testimony and how some people later said their testimony was changed or that they never said that or that there wasn't a notary there, but it's notarized and blah, blah, blah. All kinds of weird inconsistencies. But still, there's a lot of data there and it's incredibly valuable for anyone who wants to look into this stuff. So let's start with the Warren report. I've got, as I said, two versions of it. 
I actually have the first edition, the original government issue Warren report. Let me grab that real quick. So this is published by the Associated Press. It was released in 1964, one year after the assassination. The full official title is The Warren Report, Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. This report was composed by the Warren Commissioners themselves. Um, They would be Chief Justice Earl Warren, who was the chairman of the commission, Senator Richard B. Russell, Senator John Sherman Cooper, Representative Hale Boggs, Representative Gerald R. Ford, future president, Mr. Alan W. Dulles, former head of the CIA, and Mr. John J. McCloy, a very interesting character who we'll talk more about in future episodes. There was also uh, a Warren Commission staff who assisted in composing this, and they did a lot of the witness interviews. Uh, There were assistant counselors. The Warren Commission was a substantial body forwarded by honorable men of the time. Of course, that doesn't necessarily mean their report is truthful, but these were men who were held in high esteem in America at the time, and so it was figured that they would come up with a competent, clear, and accurate report. Whether or not they did is let's just say, is open to discussion. So the Warren Report would be a good starting point for anyone who wants to do a deep dive into the JFK assassination. It is, after all, the government's official word on the the assassination. So if you want to know what they're talking about and if you want to know what the official narrative is, this is going to be the place you'll want to start. Two other books that I've got that I've been drawing from quite heavily in this uh, essay episode regarding the official narrative Uh, have been Case Closed by Gerald Posner. This is Case Closed, Lee Harvey Oswald and the Assassination of JFK. Now, this book came out in 1993 for the 30th anniversary of the assassination, so 30 years old now. And for quite a long time, I'd say for about maybe 10, 15 years after it was written, this was the book defending the official narrative. This is the Bible of the Warren Commission apologists, or at least it was. Uh, This book is cited by people like Michael Shermer, the noted skeptic, uh, and others who ultimately argue that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone and that there was no conspiracy. Case Closed by Gerald Posner is effectively a biography of Lee Harvey Oswald, at least the majority of it is written as if it's a biography of Oswald, and it paints him as this sort of Well, frankly, retard. He comes off as just an unstable weirdo who's cruel and violent and sad and lonely, that sort of thing. He's kind of got a school shooter vibe to him. Uh, Posner also paints Oswald as a genuine communist. Uh, Of course, Lee Harvey Oswald was portrayed as a communist, and he portrayed himself as a communist. He did, before his death, some television and radio interviews where he expounded on the virtues of Marxism and Leninism. According to his Marine buddies, he was known as Oswaldsky or Oswaldskovich, depending on who you ask, because he spoke Russian, which in and of itself is kind of a strange thing for a low-ranking Marine to know. But Posner paints it as if from the age of 14 or so, Oswald was enamored with communism in Russia and that he was a genuine communist. Um, Some of the people who suggest that there was a conspiracy behind the assassination of JFK argue that Oswald's communism 
was really just a smokescreen or a ploy, that he was faking being a communist and was in fact working for the U.S. government. Again, something we'll talk about in more depth in a more formal show than this one. So the argument in Posner's book is that Oswald was such an incompetent moron and unstable guy who was genuinely a communist and genuinely did not like the United States, certainly didn't like the government. So Posner suggests then that, well, why would the CIA or FBI or whoever it was want him to be an agent in this grand conspiracy of theirs if he was so unreliable and flaky? Basically, he was too unstable to be an asset to government black operators. Posner also suggests that this is the case with Jack Ruby, who, on the 24th of November 1963, the Sunday after the assassination, killed Lee Harvey Oswald in the Dallas jail. Jack Ruby was also kind of a weird dude. He was, well, he was just a strange guy. Here's an anecdote from his life. He was never married, but he had this dog named Sheba, and he called her his wife. And I don't know, I mean... I guess people do that kind of thing. There's like the fur baby phenomenon. and He had eight dogs and Sheba was his wife and the other ones he called their children. And I don't know. I know it's a thing, but it's a thing that freaks me out, frankly, and I don't like it. It's icky. So that's weird, I guess, to me anyway. I'm not a pet guy. He was also just a kind of unhinged guy. He was violent and angry and nuts and hooked up with all kinds of, like, small-time criminals, but he also knew the cops. I don't know. Posner says of Ruby, like he says of Oswald, that there's no way that the government would employ such a flaky weirdo. Oh, gesundheit, darling. Oh, my goodness. That's on the radio. Oh, my God. We need to get you a cough button. Um, why would the government employ someone like Oswald or Ruby in their grand conspiracy, how could you trust these guys? They wouldn't trust these guys. They want competent operators, right? And, I mean, I guess that's a fair point to raise, and it makes sense on the face of it, but when you look at the history of American intelligence and black ops, the guys running this shit are fucking crazy. I mean, Alan Dulles was nuts, Wild Bill Donovan was nuts. These people are crazy. J. Edgar Hoover was fucking nuts. And so the idea that these lunatics aren't also going to employ lunatics... I mean, Jesus Christ, Look at read about some of the generals that were around in the Cold War era. People like Curtis LeMay. These guys were completely batshit insane. And so the argument that... <laughs> <laughs> was that a yawn or a yell or a growl, or are you trying to speak? The idea that these guys, that, that there aren't insane people in intelligence or in black ops on any level is just not realistic. I mean, we can also look at people like E. Howard Hunt, who, you know, certainly isn't a Dulles or a Donovan. He was more of a low-level guy. E. Howard Hunt, um, Frank Sturgis, these people are, are cowboys, they are, they're good at what they do, most of the time, often. But if you look at their lives and look at what they say, oftentimes they're kind of crazy. So I get what Posner's saying, kind of. I mean, I understand it. And I certainly think that that argument would be convincing to people who only look at it at face value. 
but it ignores the actual reality of how this stuff works and who these people are and have been. He's also sneaking in a premise that only sober, rational people work for and do government black ops, which, I mean, Jesus Christ. Think of what black operations, wet works, covert ops actually are. I mean, we're talking about people who go in and overthrow countries and lie to bring down governments and kill people and sabotage people and drug people. What about that line of work strikes you as the domain of rational, sober people? I mean, come on. These, again, as I said, these are cowboys. These guys are nuts. So Posner's argument is simply not convincing to me. Uh, beyond that, though, as I said, it's mostly a uh, biography of Oswald, but then... He does go in and talk about the so-called magic bullet theory, the single bullet theory, that one bullet caused seven total wounds in Kennedy and Connolly, and he attempts to resuscitate that mostly derided narrative that that bullet did indeed do that. We'll talk more about that in the official narrative breakdown episode. Uh, he also talks a little bit about the Zapruder film, the film depicting Kennedy's actual death, and how that, contrary to popular belief, uh, most people see the Zapruder film and see Kennedy's head fly back into the left and say, holy shit, the shot came from the front. Posner argues that, no, 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 in fact, uh, you're watching it wrong. And the Zapruder film actually shows beyond any shadow of a doubt that the shot came from the rear. We'll talk more about that in the official narrative breakdown episode, too. All in all, it's a book worth reading. Again, if you want to know what the official narrative is, this is one that you should definitely dive into because it's the one that most, I think, most competent uh, Warren Commission defenders will have read this book and will be citing it. So even if you're someone who wants to prove a conspiracy, you're going to have to familiarize yourself with Posner's arguments if you want to contend with them competently. So there's that one. Now, as I said, Case Closed is kind of the definitive work, the Bible, if you will, of Warren Commission apologists. Or at least it was for 10, 15 years. Until in 2007, Posner's book was usurped by Reclaiming History, The Assassination of President John F. Kennedy, written by Vincent Bugliosi, the famed prosecutor of Charles Manson. Bugliosi, or as it's technically pronounced, Bugliosi, described this work as his magnum opus, and good lord, it is a tome. It is 1,600 pages long. Uh, the footnotes don't even fit in the book. If you buy this book, it's like 40 bucks, and it comes with a CD taped to the cover that's got 950 more pages of, of footnotes. Uh, it's, you know, Bugliosi certainly wasn't lazy. It is a massive work, and the entire thing is committed to the argument that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone and that the Warren Commission, though it had some technical hiccups, was fundamentally correct. That the official narrative is right, Oswald acted alone, there was no conspiracy, don't worry about a thing. That is the bent of that book, and good God, it's heavy, it's fat, the pages are thin, the print is small. There can't be more than a hundred people on the planet who have actually read this thing from cover to cover. I certainly have not. Um, but I have spent a good deal of time with it, running through the index, table of contents, and trying to pick out what I can regarding issues that I'm interested in. He does, in this book, have a timeline 
of the assassination, which regardless of what you believe about the assassination, the timeline that he offers in here is actually incredibly useful, I think, to anybody. Uh, because it goes, I mean, almost minute by minute through the day of the assassination and describes all kinds of little details about which doctors were where in the hospital or which Secret Service agents were here or there and which cops were here and who called on the radio. Just all kinds of stuff. Witness testimony. There's so much in there that it can be looked at objectively and used as an incredibly useful resource. So I will give him that. Um, unfortunately, as big as this book is, it is filled, in my opinion, with a lot of well, I mean, questionable interpretation, let's put it that way. Uh, Bugliosi has a tendency to deride, mock, and scorn his opponents, and, in my opinion, sort of strawman their positions. Um, I don't believe, having read what I have of this book, that he deals very fairly with people who disagree with him. And I'll give some specific examples of this uh, when I do the official narrative breakdown episode. Uh, I can't really do it here because, as I said, this book is incredibly unwieldy and I've got a baby strapped to my chest, so I'm not going to try and juggle with this big, big damn thing right now. But I have spent a lot of time with this book, and it is, I think, beyond any shadow of a doubt, the definitive defense of the official narrative. He attempts to correct some of the Warren Commission's mistakes uh, and addresses some of their procedural errors, but he does fundamentally argue that Oswald was the lone shooter. Bugliosi's big fear is that the narrative that there was a conspiracy around the death of JFK will become the sort of status quo opinion in America, and that the truth of the matter, that Oswald acted alone, will be buried and lost, and the, the legend of conspiracy will sow the seeds of discontent in America and ultimately bring the country down, because we'll lose faith in our institutions and as a result, we'll elect Donald Trump. Stuff like that, you know. So his book sort of has a moral charge to it, and I think that's what, in his mind, justifies his absolute disgust with the so-called conspiracy theorists who he attempts to debunk. So if you're willing to shell out whatever it is, 40 bucks, 60 bucks, I don't remember, for this massive book, go ahead and do it. It will provide you with a lot of information. It's very data-heavy. Uh, as I said, there are so many footnotes, uh, and so that's very useful to someone who's doing a deep dive in the assassination, but boy, is this thing big. So those three are the main books that I've been consulting concerning defending the Warren Report. A larger number of books I have look more at the conspiratorial angle, and you may find that kind of unfair, and perhaps my bias is showing, and maybe it is, but... The thing about these Warren Commission defense books uh, that I found is that fundamentally they're all saying the same thing. And they may quibble about details here and there, like Posner says that the Zapruder film is this fantastic piece of evidence and we're lucky to have it, whereas Bugliosi says, eh, it doesn't really matter. Uh, we already can know what actually happened without the film. So they'll quibble on things like that. But fundamentally, they're saying the same thing. Oswald was dumb. He was a loser. He acted alone. Jack Ruby was dumb. He was a weirdo who liked dogs too much. And that's all there is to it. Whereas the conspiracy books, I mean, certainly many of them also basically say the same thing. But there's so much more nuance to that point of view where 
Some people think it was just certain CIA guys. Some people think it was Mossad. Some people think it was, again, like I said, the Cubans or the Russians. There's so many aspects to the conspiratorial view. It makes more sense to have a wider variety of conspiracy books than Warren Commission books because there's so much diversity among the conspiratorial narratives. Um, so to begin with, uh, this is actually the book that kind of set me on this research path in the first place. I've always been interested in the JFK assassination. I remember the 50th anniversary of the assassination 10 years ago. I was just out of high school then, and I was still looking into this stuff. I, certainly not in as much detail as I am now, but I was infatuated by it. I couldn't get enough of it. I was watching documentaries. I read a couple books on it, the whole bit. And it's always been a fascination of mine ever since. Whenever a new documentary comes out, I'm always sure to watch it. But I'd never taken the time to really do a deep dive into the assassination, like as a research project. So last Christmas, I, well, every year for Christmas, everyone says, what do you want for Christmas? And I just have a list of books that I want. And I give that list to everybody, and I wind up getting some of the books, and it's great, and I love it, and Merry Christmas. I can't wait. Uh, this Christmas, I'll just be asking for replacements of stuff that I lost in that uh, flood, not flood. Uh, but anyway, I got a bunch of JFK books for Christmas. It just sort of happened that way. And I joked to Alice that, you know, Jesus, I got all these JFK books, and the 60th anniversary is coming up next year, so maybe I'll just make this JFK year. And it was a half joke, but I was also thinking maybe I'd do it. Or maybe it would just be like a side project. Like I'd work on all my other stuff for the show and put out post-millenary and eschatology episodes, which it's coming. Eventually, we'll get there. And maybe I would just read about JFK on the side. So in January, after the New Year's, of course, 2023 had begun, and my stepdad texted me out of the blue one night asking if I had any book recommendations about the assassination of JFK. And so I thought about it. I knew that he hadn't really done deep dives into it. I know that he had read a couple books, I think, some years ago on it, but I figured, well, what would be a good introduction to the JFK assassination that sort of comes from the position I'm coming from? And the first thing I thought of was On the Trail of the Assassins by Jim Garrison. So let me see if I can dig that one out of here. So On the Trail of the Assassins is one of the books that the movie JFK by Oliver Stone was based on. If you've seen that movie, you know it's about the uh, New Orleans District Attorney, Jim Garrison, who back in 1969 took Clay Shaw to trial, uh, charging him with conspiracy to murder the president. That was a true story. And that movie is based largely on this book. This book is by Jim Garrison, and it recounts his adventures in bringing Clay Shaw to trial. And if you've seen the movie, you'll recognize a lot of the scenes in this book portrayed on the screen. I really, really recommend, if you're into JFK, uh, that you read this book, even if you're not looking to like actually do a deep dive like I'm doing. If you don't want to totally nerd out on JFK, this is still a great book for you. It kind of reads like a novel. Garrison is a very good writer. It's just really good uh, as a book, but also it's very, very useful for someone who's actually trying to learn more about what happened to JFK and why he was assassinated. 
and sort of the nuts and bolts of what the conspiracy might have looked like. So this book basically suggests that Oswald was, in fact, working for the government, that he was not just some idle moron who was genuinely a communist who got lucky one day uh, and shot his target and hit his target, um, but that he was working for the U.S. government, infiltrating leftist organizations. Uh, one of the points that uh, led Garrison to believe this is the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald was seen in New Orleans the summer before the, the assassination, uh, handing out these pamphlets for the Fair Play for Cuba committee, of which he was a member. And on one of these pamphlets, the address 544 Camp Street was stamped on the front. And uh, so Garrison hunted down 544 Camp Street and found that it was actually the same building uh, in which the office of another guy, Guy Bannister, used to work back in 1963. Now, Guy Bannister was the former head of the FBI Chicago office. He was a has been described as a rabid anti-communist. And um, he was known for setting up these kind of infiltration programs where people would pretend to be leftists, join up these leftist groups, and basically just kind of spy on them or maybe even do that classic Fed thing and talk them into blowing up a bridge or stealing a car and buying dynamite or whatever it might be, uh, you know, to entrap them or whatever. So that was Bannister's game. And Garrison finds out, well, hey, Oswald was working in the office of this guy. So that's certainly suggestive of something. It's also worth noting that 544 Camp Street, where Oswald worked and where Bannister worked, was also in the vicinity of the Office of Naval Intelligence headquarters in New Orleans, uh, the CIA headquarters in New Orleans, FBI building, I think, might have been over there. Uh, it was a hub of government intelligence, and lo and behold, Lee Harvey Oswald, this supposed Marxist who's about to kill the president, spends all of his free time hanging around over there with those people. Very suspicious, and certainly not in keeping with the narrative that Oswald was some malcontent who despised the U.S. government. He seemed to be spending a lot of his time with assets of the U.S. government. So without getting into too much detail, Garrison learns more about the people who are hanging out at this 544 Camp Street address and uh, connects Lee Harvey Oswald to people like David Ferry, who was this very strange guy. Um, he had alopecia, so he went all bald and hairless, and he wore this really terrible red wig, and he would, like, oil or shoe polish fake eyebrows on his face, and they just looked ridiculous. He was a complete lunatic but he was a really good pilot. Uh, as a matter of fact, he was from Cleveland. Um, also, David Ferry's weirdness kind of, again, provides further evidence that Posner is incorrect about his theory that the government would only hire sane, normal, down-to-earth people. David Ferry was a government asset. David Ferry trained Cuban exiles for a reinvasion of Cuba. Like, this guy was around the Bay of Pigs thing. This guy was one of the dudes who was planning to actually go in and take over Cuba for the American government, and he was completely insane. Um, and you'll learn about that in this book if you read it, and I highly recommend you do. Oswald and Ferry both were tied to Clay Shaw, the man that Jim Garrison eventually brings to trial, and Shaw is kind of like, according to Garrison, the sort of like regional leader of the conspiracy. I don't think that Shaw was 
by any means the guy who concocted the conspiracy. I don't think that he was the one who was ultimately behind it, and I don't think Garrison believed that either. But he was involved at a higher level than David Ferry and at a higher level than Lee Harvey Oswald. And so he's the one that Garrison brings to trial. And as a matter of fact, that 1969 trial of Clay Shaw was the first ever trial in the United States regarding the murder of J.F. Kennedy. So it's historically significant, if for no other reason than it was the first trial regarding Kennedy's assassination. But also, I think a lot of really good information came out of it. Uh, it was the first time the Zapruder film was actually shown in somewhat public. Uh, public at large didn't get to see it, but Garrison subpoenaed Time Life and was able to show it to the courtroom. And those people, at least, got to see Kennedy's head snap violently to the rear. So once again, that's On the Trail of the Assassins by Jim Garrison. Highly recommended. Another book I would recommend anyone interested in this is Rush to Judgment, written by Mark Lane. Uh, this book, I believe, came out in 66 or 7. Oh, let's look it up. Okay, it was 1966, uh, written by lawyer Mark Lane. Uh, Mark Lane had actually worked on Kennedy's campaign. Uh, he knew him, or had met him a number of times. Uh, he had also met Bobby Kennedy. So he was sort of close to the Kennedys, at least in professional terms. And upon the death of JFK, uh, certainly the media immediately jumped to the conclusion, in keeping with what government pronouncements had been, that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, and Mark Lane, being a lawyer, recognized that Oswald was entitled to legal representation, that his name had been dragged through the mud immediately uh, following his arrest, with there having been no time for any investigation to have been conducted. Already everyone was convinced that Oswald was guilty. Uh, therefore, Lane suggested that Oswald could not receive a fair trial because the public had been so poisoned against him. Um, of course, this became irrelevant just a few days later when Oswald was murdered on live television. Um, now, Oswald's mother had read an article written by Mark Lane that he had quite a bit of difficulty getting published, by the way. Uh, but he wrote this article arguing that Oswald would not receive a fair trial and that he was being misrepresented, but that a, that a true investigation should take place. Uh, this early on, Mark Lane did not suggest that Oswald was innocent, only that his guilt had been assumed by everyone right off the bat before an investigation could have genuinely taken place. So Oswald's mother calls Mark Lane and says, Yo, will you represent my dead son? And Mark Lane is like, Look, I'll look into all this stuff, but if I find that he's guilty, I'm going to say it. And she said, That's fine. So Mark Lane, I believe, went to the Warren Commission and asked them, hey, can I represent Oswald? And they said, no, we already got someone. Um, so he strikes off on his own. He does his own investigation. He interviews his own witnesses and ultimately concludes that Oswald was not the lone shooter. And so in 1966, he publishes Rush to Judgment. Um, 1967 saw the release of a documentary of the same name that kind of summarizes the book. Uh, so this is really one of the first books, it might actually be the first book, to question the Warren Commission so loudly, so publicly. Uh, so this is definitely a classic in JFK research, and I would recommend 
that you pick it up and give it a read. At the very least, watch the documentary. Another book that I've got by Mark Lane is called Plausible Denial. This, I think, is his second to last book. He died in, he died in I think, 2012? No, 2016. So, yeah, I think this was his second to last book. It came out in 1991. His last book was called Last Word, My Indictment of the CIA and the Murder of JFK. That came out in 2011. I have not read that. Uh, I would like to get my hands on it, but... Plausible Denial is the one that I found at the local used bookstore, so I picked it up and gave it a read, and I found it immensely interesting. Uh, This book is about a libel trial. A former CIA agent wrote an article for a magazine stating that E. Howard Hunt, who I already mentioned once in this episode, was actually in Dallas on the day of the assassination, and E. Howard Hunt, having read the article, sued the magazine uh, for libel. Now, given that this case has something to do with the JFK assassination, the magazine got a hold of Mark Lane and said, yo, you want to represent us? And Lane, of course, jumped at the opportunity to go up against E. Howard Hunt, a noted CIA wet worker. Recall that E. Howard Hunt was one of the Watergate burglars. Uh, And also, later, when E. Howard Hunt died in 2007, he gave a deathbed confession to his son, basically admitting that he was a part of the so-called big event, the murder of JFK. So Lane jumps at the opportunity and gets to cross-examine this very interesting cast of characters tied to the CIA, including David Atlee Phillips, who was the CIA's chief of operations for the Western Hemisphere, so a big dude. Um, But one of the most interesting people whose testimony comes up in this book, Plausible Denial, is Marita Lorenz, who was a lover of Fidel Castro's, who came up to the United States and then basically worked with the U.S. government against Castro. Now, I don't want to spoil the book for you, uh, but her testimony in this book is extremely interesting. Uh, this entire book is interesting. It, in my opinion, is actually almost like a sequel to On the Trail of the Assassins. Uh, when I was reading this book, I often thought, man, it would be really cool if, like, Oliver Stone or someone made a sequel to the original JFK movie, uh, but made it about this trial. So it's another courtroom drama kind of thing, uh, which is nice for a movie about something like this because it introduces people in a very kind of formal way to the statements of various witnesses and things like that. So this, I think, would actually make a really interesting movie, and maybe someone important will be listening to this and get the idea and make that thing. But yeah, So this, like On the Trail of the Assassins, I would recommend. Another book that I read uh, that would, I would recommend is simply called JFK, and this book is written by L. Fletcher Prouty, who was a colonel, and around the time of the assassination of JFK was the liaison between the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Central Intelligence Agency. So this guy was the go-between, the buffer, the middleman, between the military and the CIA. So he interacted with a lot of people who, in my opinion, were likely involved in the assassination um, and who were also involved in a, a number of other very interesting, sketchy dealings in the world at that time. So in his book, JFK, it's 
he doesn't so much get into the nuts and bolts of like what happened in Dallas. He hardly says anything about Oswald. He says nothing about Ruby, um, nothing about which direction the shots came from, anything like that. This guy is looking at the case from an extremely high level. And at one point in the book, he actually says, look, I don't want to talk about Oswald or the trajectory of the shots or any of this stuff because I can look at this and just know that the official narrative is bullshit and that this was a black op because he had conducted these kinds of things before. He knew what they looked like. He could read the signs. So he just knew and didn't have to bother himself with any of the details. Now, that's not the approach I'm taking in this series. As I said, I'm working on an episode going through all of the nuts and bolts, at least a, what I think is a reasonable amount of them. But that's because I am i don't have a background in black operations, and I'm assuming most of my listeners don't either. So maybe someone like Proudy can look at this and be like, all right, yeah, I've seen this before. Let's talk about something more serious. Um, but for people who are just kind of normal living their lives, we're going to need to learn the nuts and bolts that he already knows and takes for granted if we're going to make sense of this thing. But this book I won't be talking about in the Warren Commission official narrative deconstruction episode. Um, I did mention it in part one because, as I said, he takes this very, like, bird's-eye, 30,000-mile-up-in-the-sky view of the case and... I love it. He talks about, like, military theory a little bit, and political theory. He talks about how the modern world, modern governance and empire, are kind of based on these four axioms of property, like real estate, property, conquest, land ownership, that sort of thing. Malthusianism, the idea that there are too many people and that we're all going to starve unless we start culling. Uh, Darwinian evolution, the idea that mankind is progressing towards something better, and there's a kind of soft implication there that the powers that be ought to guide that evolution. And finally, uncertainty, the, or relativism, we might call it, the idea that truth is not absolute or fixed, and that basically the strong can create new truths. And these four axioms he, out, he lays right at the outset of the book, I think... I think he's right. I think these really are at the center of the sort of modern utopian project that we're witnessing. And I like this book because he's already kind of doing what I want to do with this series. He's saying, like, here's the JFK assassination, and here's how this reveals these more general bedrock truths about power and the deep state. I want to basically do that just in a more well, in my own way, I guess, I'll add my own spin to it. A lot of his book actually concerns itself with foreign policy, which at some times, as you read it, may seem like, okay, I think we've talked about the Philippines enough. But nonetheless, with this book, you get a good understanding of how clandestine operations are run. You get an outline of like who is actually pulling the strings. He names names. Like, here are the generals, here are the guys who were running the show, here's who had true power over the world, essentially, in a sort of military way, which is nothing to balk at. It's, you know, force. Force is at the bottom of politics, and these are the people who are calling the literal shots. So, it's very important in that regard, but also from a sort of philosophical point of view, 
you're learning about why the JFK assassination has something to reveal about politics and power. So I would also recommend you get a hold of that one. Uh, now, like I said, that's not going to come up in my Warren Commission official narrative breakdown episode because it's simply too far removed from the actual events of that day. It's too far removed from the details of the case. Uh, in the official narrative deconstruction episode, I'll be looking more at the nuts and bolts of the actual crime, the crime scene. I'll be dabbling with the trajectories of bullets and the testimonies of doctors and things like that. Prouty doesn't talk about any of that stuff, so he's going to come up uh, in the latter part of this series, if I ever get there, where I talk more about like the significance of why Kennedy was killed and who might have done it and why they might have done it and what the larger implications are. That's a long way down the road from now, but nonetheless, I wound up reading this book kind of towards the beginning of my looking into JFK, not really knowing what it was going to be about. Uh, it was one of the books I got for Christmas last year, and I was very excited by it because I had heard of Prouty. I knew that he was like a legit dude who, in a way, is kind of like a whistleblower. Um, he had access to very high places. He had been all over the world. He had served in various capacities in the military. He had been involved in black operations, so I just couldn't, even though I knew that I wasn't going to get to him in my podcast for a long time. I just couldn't resist reading that book. And so I did. And I'm probably just going to wind up reading it again when the time comes. But that certainly will be a pleasure for me. So I've been going for quite a while now. And perhaps I should start to wrap it up. But I will mention some of the other books that I will be using in this series. Uh, those are just kind of the ones that popped into my mind to talk about it first. But another one by Prouty is called The Secret Team. This one came out first. Uh, I think his JFK book came out in 92 because uh, it was after Oliver Stone's movie. Oh, right. So actually, I should mention this. Uh, if you've seen JFK, you'll remember that Donald Sutherland plays this mysterious Mr. X character who uh, Garrison, played by Kevin Costner, meets in D.C. And it's a really good scene in the movie. It's extremely important it's a scene you could probably watch a dozen times and, you know, tr try to listen to it very carefully because a lot of information is spilled in it, uh, some of which is very significant that only gets mentioned very briefly. Um, but Mr. X gives Garrison the rundown of, like, what the military was up to, what Black Ops is all about, what the motives were for killing Kennedy and having to do with the Vietnam War and getting helicopters and blah, 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 all this crazy shit um, that he just speaks about so matter-of-factly because he's in a position to know. Um, after the movie JFK came out, people were like, that guy didn't really exist. That's fake. That's just put in there to, you know, make, the, make Jim Garrison seem like he was right because he had this deep throat kind of character confirm his suspicions and spill the conspiracy and all that jazz. Uh, so people doubted his existence, but it was, this Mr. X character was in fact based on L. Fletcher Prouty. Uh, Oliver Stone was giving a talk after the movie came out, and he kind of joked around saying, like, I know people don't think that Mr. X was real, but I got news for you. He's sitting right next to me. He had actually brought L. Fletcher Prouty to this meeting, and Prouty got up and he talked to the crowd and said, yeah, this is this is what this is me 
And he did talk to Garrison, although the timeline is a bit different. So in the movie, Jim Garrison talks to L. Fletcher Prouty before the Shaw trial. I believe that Prouty and Garrison didn't hook up for a number of years after that. Uh, they did speak. If you read on the Trail of the Assassins that I mentioned earlier, Garrison does have a meeting with somebody. Uh, the name escapes me at the moment, and I'm not going to try and look for it, but he does have a meeting that's kind of similar to what's portrayed in the movie. But I think in order to kind of get the point across about why Kennedy was killed, uh, the filmmakers opted to just put Prouty in there, changing the timeline of real life, just to kind of provide more data to fill the movie out and make it a complete argument, if you will, of why Kennedy was killed and how he was killed, etc. So I don't think that's particularly unfair or dishonest, so long as it's admitted that that's what was done. But Prouty was the source of that Mr. X character. And if you read his book, JFK, you'll find that a lot of what is said in that movie is said in that book by Prouty. It's a pretty faithful rendition of what he actually has to say about JFK. But anyway, so that book came out in 92... And I think in 75, his first book came out. It was somewhere in the 70s, I want to say, called The Secret Team. I have not read this one yet, uh, but I've been eyeballing it. I'm really eager to read it, but I'm putting it off until I get to the more high-level, more general stuff, the why and the foreign policy and all that. Uh, right now, I'm just trying to focus on the, the nuts and bolts stuff. I've been spending a lot of time with Case Closed, with Reclaiming History, with the Warren Report. And just reading actual testimony of doctors and stuff. That's what I've been working on lately. But The Secret Team I'll get to later on. Another one that I'm looking forward to reading is JFK and the Unspeakable by James Douglas. This one is maybe 10 years old, somewhere in that area. And uh, this is one that I've seen recommended quite a bit online. I have not... I've only started reading it. And I was surprised to find that it's kind of like a Catholic... Is it a defense? I mean, it's from a Catholic point of view how Kennedy had this kind of spiritual awakening, I guess you could say. I don't want to misrepresent what the author's saying, because like I said, I haven't read the entire thing. But so far, it seems like he's saying that Kennedy kind of had this awakening that led him to want to pursue peace globally, that there was a kind of religious fervor that awoke within him, and that is why he had to be killed because he opposed the war machine. And fundamentally, that's... I mean, I don't know about a spiritual awakening. I don't know very much about Kennedy personally. Most of my interest in him, frankly, has been regarding his death, not so much his life. Now, I'm sure over the course of this series, I'll learn more about him. And naturally, if he was killed as the result of a conspiracy, I'm going to have to learn about his life, because that will speak to the motives of why he was killed. What was he doing? But I have generally been of the opinion, it makes sense to me, that he opposed the military-industrial complex in some way. And I'll get into this later. I'm not going to give you my entire opinion right now. But he opposed certain powers that be, and so they fucking killed him. Sure, why not? It's as old as time. This is what happens in politics. It's force. It's violence. Francis Bacon said that behind all of the rituals of power and legitimacy is really just a sword or a club or a gun. I think that's right. I don't think you could deny that. And so it's not strange to me that Kennedy would get bumped off by people who didn't want him to be there anymore and had the means, motives, and opportunities to 
do it and then cover it up. Sure, why not? But yeah, so that's another book. <laughs> God, I've got so many. I've got The Devil's Chessboard. That's written by David Talbot, a journalist. That's about like the CIA and covert operations and the Dulles brothers, particularly Alan Dulles, a very interesting character, member of the Warren Commission, as I stated, fired by Kennedy. Well, really, he was forced to resign from the CIA by J.F. Kennedy and by all accounts disliked Kennedy. So that's a book I'd like to get into. I've I've read some other things about Dulles in the past. I've actually got a couple biographies on Dulles. Uh, another book, a kind of dual biography written by the same author, David Talbot, is called Brothers. And it's about JFK and RFK and kind of what they were doing and how they were shaking up Washington at the time. And I know that book also gets into the assassination. So that's one that I'm looking forward to reading probably fairly soon. Once I get through this official narrative episode. I'll be able to crack into some of these books that I've been looking forward to reading. Also, as far as non-book material, I've been listening to America's Untold Stories. I think it's called. It's like a YouTube podcast. And these two guys have put together like 40-some videos now on JFK. And at first I was like, oh, is this just going to be some kind of like puff nonsense about shit that I already know? It's not. It's like really good, really hardcore deep dives into like various tertiary elements of the JFK assassination while also getting into like key players. Basically every episode of this JFK series by America's Untold Stories is like a biography of one character in the narrative. And they just talk about these guys and it's really fascinating. So I would recommend people check that out. I just started listening to the JFK, or what's it called? The Solving JFK podcast. You can just type that into your search engine. Uh, They're like short 20-minute episodes. I've only listened to the first three, and that's pretty good. It's funny, I just started listening to it today, as a matter of fact. And the guy is kind of doing the same thing I'm doing, where he says, we have to start by looking at the legitimacy of the official narrative. So that's kind of cool. Aside from that... I haven't really listened to many podcasts devoted to JFK. I know there's a JFK Facts podcast. I really should be listening to that. That's by Jefferson Morley, the editor of the JFK Facts website. As far as other resources, you can go to the Mary Farrell Foundation. I'll throw a link to that in the show notes. That's just got everything you could possibly want on JFK. It's got articles written by all sorts of people, uh, you know, in favor of the official narrative, against the official narrative, mostly against the official narrative. It's a kind of an, a depository for alternative information regarding JFK. It's got timelines. It's got, I, there are probably full books on there. It's got archives of documents. It's really good. Of course, you can go to the National Archives website and just read the declassified documents that have come out regarding JFK and really do your own research. Uh, I already mentioned you could download the Warren Commission, uh, the supplementary volumes. Uh, Also, you could go back and listen to episode 80 of the Peace Revolution podcast. I did this recently. Now, this podcast episode I'm recommending to you now is 20 hours long. 20 hours. 20 hour long podcast. I listened to the entire thing. And if you think that's crazy, uh, wait till I tell you that I've done it more than once. (laughs) Um... 
Uh, this was actually the first episode of the Peace Revolution podcast by Richard Grove of Tragedy and Hope uh, that I ever heard uh, years ago. I don't remember. 2015, maybe I heard it. 16. And I was like, who the hell puts together a 20-hour podcast? And then I listened to it, and I was like, oh, this fucking rules. Cool. So yeah, I just listened to that again recently, and it's just a whole bunch of stuff regarding the assassination. It's like documentaries and interviews and stuff all clipped together. Uh, the last five hours, I think. Is it five? I don't know. The last chunk of that podcast is actually a conversation with L. Fletcher Prouty, and I really enjoyed that. You can also find, if you just type in L. Fletcher Prouty or Jim Garrison, Mark Lane, you can type these people's names into YouTube, and you'll find interviews. You'll find all kinds of material. So that's something you can do if you want to look into this stuff more. So yeah, there's, there's plenty of JFK information out there. And I just thought today, because it's been such a long time since I came out with the show, and because the anniversary is here, I should do something. I should put out an episode. I need to shake the rust off of me and get the podcast back on track anyway. So goddammit, tonight's the night I'm doing it. Baby strapped to me or not. So now that I've recorded this and in just thinking about how long it's taken me to do an episode, I'm thinking that if I'm being realistic, the format of this show is going to have to change if I want to actually keep putting out episodes in a timely fashion. I don't want it to be four months between releases. That's nuts. So what I'm thinking is going to have to happen is... My general, my typical episode that I've done up to this point has been basically like an essay where I will sit down and I will just research and like really painstakingly put together a presentation with footnotes and sources. And basically I write an essay for every episode and then I read and ad lib to an extent that essay and present it to you. And I still want to do that. That's what I love doing. I love doing these research projects and writing essays, frankly. But that can't be every episode anymore. If I'm going to be regularly releasing episodes, as one should, they're going to have to more often be like this, like either just me kind of talking about stuff, perhaps me talking with other people. I'd really like to get Alice on the podcast with me because we have these awesome conversations about all kinds of stuff, and they're just kind of lost I mean, we remember them, and we enjoy them, and we could pretty much do them, have those kinds of conversations whenever we want. We've been doing it for as long as we've known each other. Um, so I was thinking, you know, maybe if I want to keep my show going, I'll just have to start recording our conversations. And they get weird and wild and hilarious and fucked up and everything. And they're nuts. They're good. But they're all over the place, and they're wild, and we'll argue about stuff and rant and bitch about things and crack jokes, and it's wild and fun. And I think it'd actually be really good podcast material. So I'd like to do that. Uh, I really enjoyed talking about my books. So as I said earlier, I'm still putting all my books and stuff back together. So I might wind up doing like a whole show where I just walk you through my entire collection of books and talk about shit that I own. Uh, that would be fun for me anyway. But yeah, so the, the essay episodes, like the, the Warren Commission official narrative breakdown episode I'm working on it, man, but it's taken longer than it used to. And I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is right now. So I'm still going to do it. I'm still going to get all this shit done. I'm still going to make my essay episodes, as I'm now going to call them. 
but they're just not going to be as frequent as they used to be. But at least this way I can still put out content, hopefully more frequently. It's just going to be a little more casual. But maybe that's a good thing. Maybe people like the kind of casual conversational thing better than some dude just lecturing them about the origins of the British Empire <laughs> or whatever it may be. Eschatology. So yeah, that's going to be it for now. You know, all the whatever episode comes next, I have no idea what's going to come next. I'm just playing it all by ear. I'm flying by the seat of my pants here. I don't know that the next episode I release will be that Warren Commission breakdown episode. Maybe it will be, maybe it won't be, I don't know. Or maybe it'll be something just me talking or Alice and I talking about something not related to JFK at all. Who knows? Your guess is as good as mine. But I'm excited to be back. I really, really am. And I hope people hear this. I hope people didn't forget about this little show of mine. I hope it finds you and finds you well. And I hope you'll join me next time. Remember to subscribe, tell your friends, all that stuff. Storyofnowhere.com is where you're going to find all the show notes for all the episodes I do. Find all the episodes I've ever done on there. Uh, you can also find the archived show, They Say, that Alice and I used to do covering the Council on Foreign Relations Journal Foreign Affairs. There's a lot of good stuff there. I have also not been doing my Road to Hell Film Reviews podcast with Nikki P. lately, just, again, because it's it's hard right now. i Hoping that we'll bring that back sometime soon. But you can still find all of our episodes uh, at RoadToHellFilmReviews.com. Those are great. Highly recommend them. And uh, StoryOfNowhere.com slash library is where you can find my small catalog of books that I'm selling. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm working on more of those, too, believe it or not. I swear to God, I have not given up on this Story of Nowhere project stuff, guys. It's just been... It's just been a thick couple of months is all, but I'm, I'm trying to get back into it. I have actually been, or I was working on a big publishing project for the Nowhere Library, and then this whole my basement podcast studio turning into a sponge thing happened. So that kind of set me back because I had to take all my equipment apart and move it to another room, but I've got something brewing for that. So yeah, and also buy my book storyofnowhere.com slash book it's small it's cheap helps me out grab yourself a copy give it to someone for christmas whatever thank you all for listening so very much now i'm going to try and get this baby to go to bed good night get up off of that thing and shake the you you better get up off of that thing